And let's read the uh, chapter again, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. And the grass withers and the flower fades. God's holy inerrant word, it endures forever. Well, I hope you are gaining an impression upon your hearts to the depth and the wonder and the amazement of the holiness of God. I personally do believe, and I am impressing this upon you all, that holiness is the most significant attribute of God and his majesty. Holiness is that which permeates through all of his divine attributes and is as well an attribute itself. But the holiness that, that does permeate to all of his attributes is that declaration that in every way God is set apart as God alone. We share in some of his attributes. We share in knowledge. We share in holiness and in righteousness. We share in love and communion and fellowship in those ways. We share in some aspects of God's holiness. 
But to say God is holy is to say there is still none like him, even though we may share in some of those communicable attributes. Holiness is the glory of his majesty. When you use those words, the glory of God, the majesty of God, what are you talking about? That he is holy. (laughs) There is none like him. There is nothing that even comes close to being comparable to him. He is the God who is to be worshipped because there is no other God. Period. He alone is God. His holiness speaks of that incomparable, incomprehensible nature of God. Can you fathom out even a measure of the depths of who God is? And we are left struggling to, in our minds, answer that question. Not only who is God, but what is God? What is he like? And we use things to try and illustrate him, but they all fall short. He is omnipotent. That means he isn't just the most mightiest of beings. He is almighty. (laughs) All powerful. I mean, we sang it. He speaks. It is done. Can you imagine if you're trying to build a house and you come up to it, even if you have all the material lying on the ground and you were to say to that material, assemble and become a house. Wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) And it would be the most perfect house. God spoke all things into being by the word of his power. The idea that that took Millions or billions of years is an offense to who he is. It's an offense to his holiness. I say that in case any here are sort of theistic in their view of God, but evolutionary in their view of creation. There's a reason why he took six days, not because he couldn't do it any faster. But that's another story. (laughs) That's another message. He is omniscient. And it doesn't just simply mean he knows all things. He is all-knowing. He knows our words before we speak them, before we think them. He is wisdom itself, and if we want to understand anything, it comes through the knowledge that God bestows, not because we have all knowledge The irony of science today is that they think they can prove all things. They think they know the estimation of the universe when the few little satellites and uh, vessels that they have sent out have only covered one, not even one square in this entire building. Look to that and then they say, this is what the universe is like and we're... Well, you can show us a lot of pictures, but you don't know. Isn't that ironic how arrogant we can be in the face of the holiness of God? Omnipresent, everywhere present. And he must be. He created the universe. He's able to reach in his creative power to the very edge of the universe. We're not. But he must be there because he created it. And, and it's not just that he fills all things with his glory. He is everywhere present. These are thoughts too great for us. 
He is infinite, eternal. He is unchanging. God is holy. (laughs) He is also in his holiness the God who confronts us with our morality. Our morality. We live in a day where absolute truth and absolute righteousness is vacant. I don't know how many of you were disturbed by how our Supreme Court just in the last couple weeks has rejected the idea that someone can be punished to the end of their life for capital murder. (laughs) And the number of men who are being released because to serve more than 25 years without parole is, is cruel and unusual punishment. Morality. What, what is right? What is morally right? What is morally true? And you cast off God and you cast off that absoluteness of what truth and righteousness is. But that doesn't mean that God in his holiness doesn't confront us with it every day. And thank God we have that level of the spirit of God within us that works upon our conscience to make us aware of God's holiness in this way. God is holy. And the holiness of God, as we saw with Isaiah last week, also confronts us with our mortality. We aren't holy. In and of ourselves, we are not a people who even strive to pursue holiness. God in his holiness also holds that chief right and responsibility to be the judge of all the earth. And there is a day set where though men of this world may escape earthly civil justice in some measure or more, they will not escape the justice of God. He has set a day when every single person who has ever been created by his hands, even those who die in the womb, will stand before him in judgment. And he will look upon them and hold them accountable for all that they have done. Whether good or bad. Can your mind wrap around that truth? How many of us have forgotten wrongs that we have done? Rights that we should have done and didn't? Or rights that we have done and wrongs that thankfully God rescued us from them. How many of you can remember every single one of them for yourself? We can remember them better for others, of course. But for ourselves, we forget them all too quick. God hasn't forgotten a single one. He is holy. And that holiness of God confronts our mortality. Making us like Isaiah say, woe is me, I am undone. That's a summary of where we have come thus far in looking to the holiness of God. We left Isaiah last week in that fear of his eternal well-being. Woe is me, I am undone. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How in the world am I, this wretched man, able to spend an eternity with this holy God? And we heard the answer to that. That the humbling work of the holiness of God doesn't just simply reveal our sinfulness, but it shows us the provision this holy God has made for our sinfulness. That atonement and that cleansing in Christ, the glory in which we stand, the beautiness of the holiness of another that now covers us, that we may encounter the presence of God in the fear of the Lord, but realize I have been cleansed Hallelujah. This is where I stand. And it's after that that God's holiness also now comes and reveals another aspect to us. And that is the aspect of serving in his kingdom. And now that Isaiah has been uh, cleansed, that atonement has been provided for him... God now begins to speak to this creature. Up to this point, Isaiah has only been engaging with the vision of the holiness of God and the message of the angels that are around his throne and the work of the angels that have come to bring the gospel to him. And after he has received that atonement for his sins, that cleansing that he needs to be in God's presence, now God speaks. Isn't that something? How I will talk to this individual, one who has been in this way blessed with the work of my son. And in his holiness, God now opens the way for service in his kingdom. You know, we sang that phrase from Psalm 29. It's also in Psalm 96 and 1 Chronicles 29, I think it is. In the beauty of holiness, worship the king, but we could easily also add, in the beauty of holiness, now serve the king. In the beauty of holiness, serve the king. Isaiah has been prepared with that vision of the holiness of God and in that work of the holiness of God, now to serve the Lord in holiness. And again, this is an aspect of God's holiness that I believe we all too often neglect. We serve the Lord. We don't just simply sit in the beauty of it. It's like going and looking at a beautiful house and just dreaming. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to have that house and live in it? We now live in the house of God. We now live in the holiness and the presence of God. But we live with a purpose to serve and to serve God's kingdom. Think of how the Lord said it in Matthew 6. You know the verse very well. That as much as we are called to pursue holiness, what else are we called to pursue? Seek. And to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In all that we do, 
Because of the holiness of God, now, uh, if you will, imbued and bestowed upon us in the glory of Christ. We have purpose. And our purpose is to serve God's kingdom in all areas of our life. To serve God's kingdom first. It's not an add-on. It's not a secondary thing. It's not a passing thought. First. Seek first. And to do that, we need first of all a ready heart. We need to be serving with a ready heart. Is your heart ready to serve God's kingdom? Now we might think, well, is not what we're doing and looking for today, that ability, that strength, that encouragement to do so. Well, no, this is, this is how we begin every week, serving the glory of God by worshiping Him. This is, again, this, there's a strong connection to what this day is. This is the holy day, the Lord's day. It is a day for holy worship. It isn't a day for us to go about and do what we please. It is the day of the Lord to be renewed and revived in his glory and his holiness. Because we've got a whole week before us, six days to work. Not four, not, not five, but, but six. Not 40 hours, but every day. And we need a ready heart for that. You know that command of God. What is it that God, in both the Old and New Testament, impressed upon all his people? Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy. And, and that, that command, it, it's an imperative, and I think that's the better word. It's an imperative, it's setting for us what is to be the, the going concern of our life every day is to be holy. And in the grace of Jesus Christ, we have been made holy in that aspect. We have been enabled to pursue this purpose in life. But it is a pursuit that we are to desire. We are to pursue. I know last week, some were probably a little uh, maybe uh, confused, but I, I quoted a line from Refiner's Fire, and I still hold that. We don't choose to be holy. God has chosen us for holiness. And he tells us now, pursue it. <laughs> pursue it. As something that you desire to lay hold of. And, and in fairness to Refiner's Fire, and I'm saving it for this week, the essence of being holy is found within that phrase. You think of it, my heart's one desire. That's right, it should be your one desire to be holy. Because God has chosen you for it. To be set apart for you, Lord. And what's that other line that comes there? Ready to do your will. The readiness of the heart. To do the will of God is part and parcel holiness at work in us. How many of you are ready for worship today? How many of you found it conflicted with other things that you wanted to do today? 
And how many of you found it easier maybe to lay aside that which we are to be ready for, for those other things today? Ready to do your will as long as it doesn't conflict with mine. Is a common struggle. I'm not saying this is easy. Holiness is never easy, my friends. But I'm I'm saying here's the struggle we have. Here's the struggle we have to be set apart for the Lord. Because there's always something else that we can mix into what our readiness to do the will of God should be consuming us. It's a little complicated, but there's always something that's ready to conflict with that. And God's question to you, it isn't just a question to a prophet. It isn't just a question to ministers or to men who want to be ministers. God's question is, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's a combination there of our Trinitarian language. The one God in three persons. Whom shall I send? Singular, who will go for us? And he's not talking there about the angels. He's talking there, God himself saying, who will go for us? You see here the immediate effect of being reconciled with the holy, holy, holy Lord is a readiness to be sent out to serve. Even without knowing what God wants him to do. He says, here I am. You know, like that eager beaver child in school who knows the answer to the teacher's question. And their hand goes up and it's like, I I got the answer. (laughs) That's the emphatic of Isaiah here. Here I am. Send me. Send me. In many ways, my friends, that is the image of Christ within us. If we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus, if we have been brought under that covering of his atonement and that glory of his righteousness, we can't help, or it should be that we can't help, but be ready to serve. Because what was the heart of Christ. John 3, 16, God sent him. You know that. The Father sent his Son out of love. But you go a little further into the next chapter, John 4, verse 34, and Jesus says there, my food, my desire is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. We know the work that Christ was sent to do. We look to the cross and we see he completed that work. But my friends, the sentiment of his will is now the sentiment of our will. My desire is to do the will of him who sent me. And that means God is trying to send you. Not overseas, not send you into the world, into your neighborhood, into your workplaces, into your classrooms, into those places where you, as his holy servant, can now reflect his glory and kingdom to others. And the challenge that all of us have, it's that Joshua 24 challenge. 
It's that Joshua 24 challenge. You, most of you, I know a number of you, have it in your home, on your walls. As for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. But that's just one line, one phrase in the verses there. Listen to the fullness, uh, Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, in truth. Serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Why does something get emphasized three times in a very, very short space? Because this is the emphatic of our life. I am ready to do his will. I am here to serve the Lord. My friends, to do this, we need that eye to the holiness of God. That's the motivation. You might think, well, the cross is our motivation. We do it out of love. That's what increases our love. But when you see and know the glory of who God is, and the kingdom-mindedness occupies our thoughts. Are you kingdom-minded? I thought of it this week. I had a discussion last week with one about some of the challenges of church planting. And it's interesting, this past week, it just met me again. And it's met me often. How many of you, and I'll preface it by, by asking this question. I know this is going to be controversial, but it's, it's thinking. Are you kingdom-minded? How many of you are only willing to take work where you know there is a strong reformed church to attend? You know, and, and I'll say this on their behalf, they didn't know I was going to say it. If it hadn't been for the DeVrieses impressing the need of a Reformed church in Kingston, we wouldn't be here. Well, I shouldn't say we wouldn't, but in God's providence we were. Because there was no strong Reformed church going on. Who shall we say? Who will go for us? And I was confronted Again, by a person who said, well, you don't have enough people my children's age. Do you know how many times I have said to people, come and be the first? <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm, I'm showing you, because it's going to bear again, that we can find reasons why we don't do kingdom work. We can find a whole lot of reasons, but what it comes from is our heart isn't set on the holiness of God. And and that's in keeping with this chapter. Isaiah has that vision of God and it stirred him to realize his sinfulness. But then it stirs him to say, I'm ready to do your will, God. I don't know what you have planned for me. I'm ready for it. You know, we have another instance that deals with this willingness to serve. This idea of, here I am, send me. Only this person uh, was very unwilling. And he knew what the work was. And it was a hard work. And it was a unique work tied to him. But it was a man who was also confronted with the holiness of God. Standing on holy ground. Called to take his sandals off. Because he was bowing before a burning bush that was talking to him. Isn't that something? Think about that. 
He was standing on holy ground and talking to an ever-burning bush that didn't get consumed, that spoke back to him. And God said, I am sending you to deliver my people. And if you read chapters 3 and 4, what did Moses say? No, I, I can't. I'm not important enough. That was his first reason. No, they, they won't believe me. Second reason. I'm not eloquent. Third reason. I don't want to do it. Finally, the truth comes out. Send someone else. Who will go for us? And you know what? The Lord said three times to Moses. Three times in that interchange. I'll be with you. I am has sent you. What greater authority can you go in than the eternally existing God will be with you? I will be your mouth. Don't worry. But it's your encouragement to serve. It's the glory of God and the Emmanuel presence of God. And it it flows just as it did with Isaiah. It flows from that knowledge of what this holy God in heaven has done to make me his holy servant. And the first response is, send me, send me. But a lot of us are like Moses, aren't we? I don't know, that'll be too hard for my family. Well, it is hard. It was hard for my family. I'm sure it was hard for... I'm not going to speak for them, but the DeVries family first. Things are hard. Service in God's kingdom is not easy in this world. But the Lord your God is with you. And if you are holding fast to that glory of his merciful work to atone for your sins, for his merciful work that has now cleansed and washed you clean of all of your sins. What is the natural response? Go to Psalm 51. We all know Psalm 51 very well. We know it's reasoning. David's sin. But you go to Psalm 51 and we know those verses from 10 to 12 and it's our pleading with God when we have sinned and we grieve the Spirit and we are coming in repentance and saying, God, please, by your almighty grace and your mercies that are sure, come and create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore in my heart the joy of your salvation. And we end there. You know I often like to say, what's the next verse? Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and other sinners will be converted to you. I'll do your work. I'll serve you. I'll serve your kingdom. a natural response. But the problem is, within our own hearts, we want all that blessing from God, not realizing that it is God's way in His holiness to set us aright to serve His kingdom. E.J. Young, he's, he's dead, but he, he was a more modern 
a theologian at Westminster in Philadelphia. And he wrote a commentary on Isaiah. And he said of this, he said, in this, uh, said of this in, in Isaiah 6, in this matchless passage, we find the reason why so few are willing to serve God. They have lost the conviction of sin and the need of the gospel. And, and, and there was why we see God working this in Isaiah's soul. To turn them around to see you're a kingdom servant. Do you have a ready heart to serve? Look to the holiness of God. Look to the cross of Christ. God in his holiness through his son prepares you, cleanses you. He makes your heart ready. Look to him. And secondly, as we see with verses 9 and 10, serving God's kingdom doesn't just mean serving with a ready heart, but it means serving without an eye to increase. <laughs> and he's not alone in this. I'm not pulling things out of this passage just to emphasize this. This is an awareness that the work is never easy. Kingdom work is hard work. And quite often frustration, unbelief, and doubt set in because the task is hard. Look what he says to Isaiah. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, keep on seeing. Even though you're not going to understand and not perceive. Keep on, keep on. You've all seen those Little logos on t-shirts, keep on, be calm, or something like that, keep on being calm. And then they've, they've done a whole lot of other things in respect of that. God came up with it first. Keep on. Because it's a hard task. There's two things that make it hard. One, we readily understand. The second, we don't readily understand. But the thing that makes it serving hard is the hard, sinful heart of those whom we are serving in the name of the Lord. That's a reality. Whether it's an unbeliever or as it is in this case, God's own people who have gone astray and who no longer covet the kingdom of God. It's hard. Because we're dealing with hard hearts. We're dealing with people who in their sinfulness have turned away and no longer desire God. But it's also because the sovereignty of God is what is overseeing everything we do. And we don't know the mind of God in everything. I often use that illustration when it comes to praying for people. We start out very enthusiastically praying for someone. Someone makes known a name to me. Please pray for this person. I witnessed to them and the word was planted. Can you pray for their salvation? And I'll pray the first day or two. And then by the third day, their name starts to slip away. And within a week or two weeks, their name is gone. And you think of it the next time their name comes up. Oh, where are they? And we've forgotten to pray for them. Most times we stop praying because... 
We believe that God in his sovereignty has said no. That's not the case. We don't know the will of God. And we don't know when the will of God will be accomplished. And so what is the task before us? Keep on. Keep on. Not because you see increase. But because you are serving God. The sovereignty of God in this particular case. We'll see more of it next week. But in the sovereignty of God, he had Isaiah go and keep on in his service because he was exercising a deepening judgment upon those who persisted in idolatry and unbelief. Now that's frightening. That's the sovereignty of God. Jesus experienced the same. If you were to read in John 12, there uh, in verses 37 to 43, John quotes from Isaiah both Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And he said, with all the ministry that Jesus did, three years of ministry and healing, people loved his healing. But there in John 12, verse 37, the the Pharisees and the priests come up and say, come on now, you've got to show us better signs than you've shown us for us to believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then those words from Isaiah 53, 1 are spoken. Who has believed the report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus had to keep on. (laughs) To a dull people. Who were, as he would say later on, who were not willing. (laughs) We act sometimes like a child who in frustration throws away the toy that doesn't work the way he wants it to. You ever seen that little tantrum? <laughs> if you haven't had children, just ready yourself for it. Not, not picking on them. We were all there once. This isn't working. It's like the golf. Golf has to be the most frustrating sport. You can do everything right in your swing in the slightest little adjustment as it's going down. We'll send your ball into the woods and you spend more time looking for your golf balls than you do actually hitting them. It's frustrating. So is kingdom work. But if we take our eyes off of the increase that we want to see and for joy in the holiness of God serving Him, as he has redeemed this wretched man and drawn him into his kingdom. And that's all the joy I get. You have to serve without an eye to increase. And going back to my earlier illustration about talking with an individual who wasn't willing to be the first, it is frustrating. And that's where you have to come and say again, Lord. This is in your hands. You're the sovereign one. And 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 I'm coming to this point again because I want you to understand that I am grateful to you for the Lord who has drawn together to form this church. A lot of people come and go. Some were kingdom-minded. Some left because of real and, and, and good reasons. We understand. It's hard to see people go. 
We want them to say. We want them to be part of this. But in the end, we are serving here, not because of the name of hope. We are serving the kingdom of God. And the glory of God's kingdom is far greater. And it comes back again for us to understand that, that this work is hard. We're dealing with spiritually deaf, blind, willfully ignorant of God's holiness people who need atonement or who need to be renewed and reconciled with God again. We're dealing with all of this issue of sin. But even in the midst of that, we have to step back and realize that I, this, this holy person, this holy man or woman whom God has called to serve in his kingdom... I'm here not because I had better hearing or better eyesight or better understanding than those who I'm ministering to. That's a fallacy. (laughs) I'm here only because of the sovereign grace of God. That's what I'm standing in. And I'll serve God because he is worthy. You see, Isaiah's willingness and readiness to serve was not because of the success of his message, but because of his love for the king who was sitting on the throne, the glory of the king that enveloped him. The holiness of God moved him to serve and seek God's kingdom, not the benefits he would see or receive. Let that be the impetus of all we do. And God will receive the glory. Let us pray.